Welcome to the Texas Oil and Gas Podcast, the show dedicated to bring you the news from the oil patch deep in the heart of Texas, with your host, Ryan Ray and Josh Shelton. We're back with the Texas Oil and Gas Podcast. This is episode 107. I'm your host, Josh Shelton, and my friend and co-host, Ryan Ray. Ryan, I'm ready to go kill some shrimp, man. How about man, you? Man, I'm excited. The shrimp bowl, as we're recording this, is what, just two short days away. Today's Monday. This come out, I guess, depending on if Nate actually does his job or not, it'll come out on Tuesday, but you might hear this after the Shrimp Bowl, knowing, knowing Nate's schedule. Um, but yeah, so the, the Shrimp Bowl is Wednesday. If you haven't gotten your tickets, we will be taking tickets. I think, I don't think we're sold out yet, last time I looked. Um, it's getting getting closer to sold out than not, so um, you need to get your tickets at textualongaspodcast.com slash shrimp. But if we do have spare capacity, we will, we will be selling tickets at the door. It's only 10 bucks, 10 to get in. Um, Josh, it's it's funny though you you skipped over the fishing trip. I, I just noticed that you didn't even bring the sponsor up. You didn't mention that we went fishing, and the only the only reason I can imagine is because you went fishing was it three times now, and you've never beaten me. And so um, then this last time you got massacred. I mean, oh. to put it mildly, it was it was it was. Yeah. Massacred. So I, I think I think uh, statistically I've been winning like while we're on the water for more time than you have. It's just uh, that you got a lucky fish. This one you got one lucky fish about an hour before we left. I mean, let's just talk about this. So if, if the NBA Finals are on right now, and if <laughs> if the Raptors at the end of the series said, well, you know what, we ran we we led the first three quarters of every single game. But the Warriors win the first five game, uh, four out of the first five games. No one's gonna go. Well, obviously, you should give the trophy to the War, uh, the Raptors. They're gonna say no. The Warriors were the better team. So yeah, you caught a few fish and you had some moments where you were ahead. But but to act like that's, I mean, I mean, well, I don't I'm, give my I'm kid participation trophies. I'm just the saying word. I don't give my kid participation trophies. You might give yours, but <laughs> well, the word massacre wouldn't. Qualify if you were getting if you wasn't in the lead at least for ten percent of the time we were. I don't fishing. know, man. That last fish I caught, you know, it was like I dunked on you. I was hanging on the rim, just looking at you, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, that was a lucky trout. That was the biggest trout we caught in the whole. The it whole was. Trip so we far. did have a good time. Uh, of course, we're talking about our sponsor at Baff and Bay Rod and Gun. Be sure to check them out baffandbayrodandgun.com. We have one more trip, and I think we got to get the listeners. Selected for that. Josh will not be going, unfortunately. He uh, has this little baby coming, and so he will be taking off, um, despite the fact that I had a baby and I went. You know, I'm not going not gonna to bring that up too often. But um, but Josh won't be there. I will be mm-hmm. there. So we'll have uh, a couple of listeners going. I don't know. I thought about inviting Nate, but, I mean, no one wants to hang out with Nate, do they, Josh? Yeah, I think all of our listeners yeah. would cancel. Right. If, the sponsor if may, going. may revoke the trip if we let Nate go. <laughs> If you do oh, want to see Nate yeah. in the wild, he will be at the Shrimp Bowl. Um, of course, by the time he hears this recording, he may quit. So if he doesn't quit, he will be at the Shrimp Bowl. <laughs> <laughs> Again, text on, on gaspodcast.com slash shrimp. So, uh, Josh, other than that, man, it's been good. Uh, enjoyed the week off last week, and we're back at it, buddy. Well, uh, you know, Oxy, the, we were in the news on that for about three straight weeks. Felt like that's all we were talking about, but... Um, there's, we take a week or two off, 
we've been looking over some of the, the Oxy and Adarco deal and so we knew that their debt was going to start accumulating pretty quickly. They thought they were going to unload 8.8 .8 billion to Total, um, but there were some issues they were running into, Ryan, with uh, some of the government there stepping in and saying, "Look, we're not gonna we're not gonna let this happen. You you didn't come and contact us first. Um, so I wonder how how big of an issue this really is. Or do you think they'll go ahead and get the deal through, uh, or do you think the government's really gonna grandstand? Yeah, here? I think the government will capitulate. Um, you know, even the piece that we're looking at, it, it starts out by saying, "Well, they were, they were, um, you know, they're not going to let it happen." This, that, and the other, and then it said they quickly came down off that stance. So, I think it's a lot of posture, and we do have to remember that you know these international assets are owned by the government, so you do have to, you do have to deal with them. But uh, you know, this it's funny. This oxy deal has really soured from a PR standpoint on them. Uh, I know I can't remember who it was, but one of their big investors I saw was um, was going to sue them over this, and so this is going to be something that you know in five years, Oxy will be able to look back, or you know, ten years will be able to look back and say, "Wow, we were right," or you know if it starts to kind of trend south on them, it might you know snowball, even if it's not really going south, but the margins aren't as good, the returns aren't as good as Oxy's kind of led people to believe. Um, even though they, they might be good returns normally, um, this, this could go south on them. It's funny how much heat they're, they're taking for this deal. Um, and really it's for an extra, what, $10 billion. I mean, and that's a lot of money, but I'm just saying it was, it was 47 to 57 or 48 to 58. So it's not like it was, you know, they, they outbid it by 20 billion. So the people must think the margins obviously are, um, uh, are that close, but if they unload the assets, I don't, I don't really see, you, you would think that would kind of help sure it up. Um, but but it's it's just been funny to watch because uh, man it, it felt like Oxy kind of came in there and everyone was cheering them on and then as soon as the deal closed everyone's like oh my gosh what were you thinking yeah and and based on you know that's what I'm kind of wondering Ryan they they're trying to their target margins are ten to fifteen billion asset sales is what they're shooting for they're trying to sell some offshore assets as well and they're supposed to hit those numbers if they can. Uh, you know, if Algeria will relent and allow that deal to go through, then they should hit those numbers. And, you know, it, soon after they made the deal, there were some issues with the terms with the Warren Buffett. You know, he was putting up to $10 billion. There was some, I think, 8% interest uh, on, on that, which that can get pretty hairy pretty quickly. So uh, be interesting to watch, you know, so because five years from now, they may be one of the super majors or they may not be. Uh, they may be in... in a more serious situation. So, the irony of ironies would be as if Chevron buys these acts, uh, these assets from Oxy, five years from now for pennies on a dollar. That would be like, you know, that would be like Chevron hanging on the rim, dunking on the Oxy if that's what happens. Yeah, that'd be their twenty-five minute <laughs> trout right there. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, and there was another article, um, basically the same stuff. I'm going to link to it in the show notes, but it has a few different pieces of information uh, from some of the conversations with Vicky, uh, the chief executive. Uh, this one was with, I believe, Reuters. Another interesting thing that came out this week, well, we all know Pioneer's been going through some things. They uh, they laid off a tremendous, a tremendous amount of people about, uh, what's that, a couple weeks mm -hmm. ago now? They had that, mm -hmm. that huge layoff. Then there's an article that came out just to give some perspective on how deep of a layoff this was. So 27% of their workers uh, were laid off a couple weeks ago. 
that's an enormous, an enormous layoff for Pioneer. Yeah, it's it's really sad for Pioneer and the folks at Pioneer. Um, they're trying to trim the fat and get get profitable or more profitable. But the problem I have with this piece, Josh, is is that I don't. This is a business columnist, so you would think that he would understand basic business concepts. But I don't know. Help me out here. It says, "How bad are Pioneer's job cuts? At twenty-seven percent of workers, they're deeper than after the nine after nine eleven and the financial crisis." So when you read that headline, you're thinking that Pioneer has cut off more, uh, cut more jobs than they lost in either after 9/11 or the financial crisis, right? That's what the the headline is setting you up, and you go, well, maybe it's a bad headline, and so then you go in to read the article, and it's the same thing, except for you learn that American Airlines laid off 20,000 people, and United and Continental cut 12,000, Boeing cut 30,000. And then now you realize that it's, an, it's, a, it's a percentage deal. It's a percentage of jobs that are cut. And I, I just got to thinking, if you have a company that has four employees and you lay off two, that's 50%, right? By this article's logic, that would be worse than the 9-11 or the financial crisis cuts. So it, 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 yeah. doesn't, it doesn't mean anything. Now, it's bad for Pioneer, obviously, but I, I, just, I just read this and I thought... I mean, it's. I, I guess on some level you could look at it and say, well, 9-11 was bad for the economy or the financial crisis was bad for the economy and Pioneer is having more cuts than this. But that's not how, that's not how things work. Um, you know, what, what's, what is maybe you could argue that Pioneer was more bloated than these companies, so when they have to cut back, the cutbacks are um, extend further. There's a lot of things that are going on here. Another thing I thought is that just from a standpoint of impact of the area, there's been um, 877 jobs that were limited, eliminated. So if you wanted to say that the percentage thing matters, okay, um, and then you said, well, let's look at the, the, the number of people. So you have 20,000 versus 877. Now, there are some cases where 877 people would have more of an impact on a local economy than 20,000. So, for instance, tomorrow if, 877 heart surgeons, I don't know how many heart surgeons are on DFW, but 877 heart surgeons in DFW quit and moved. That would be pretty pretty significant because then you'd have like no heart surgeons or I don't know how many there are, but yeah, right. Deep, deep, deep. Or 877 paramedics or 800, you know, so there are certain things where you could look at it and say that the, that the smaller number would actually have a greater impact on the Metroplex. Um, but for me, this piece was a little bit misleading because it is a bad cut. It doesn't really understand. It doesn't really explain was Pioneer overbloated, what was going on. Of course, Pioneer has sold off a lot of assets and other basins. Um, so I thought there was a lot of meat on the bone that could have been picked away here instead of going for, well, hey, that uh, that they're worse than the, the, the 9-11 or the financial crisis. And, and, and in reality, um, if you just go by pure numbers, you got 20,000 versus 877. It's not, unless you wanted to argue that those 877 jobs were more strategic to the Metroplex economy, and I don't think they can make that argument. So um, it's just disappointing when you see pieces like this because it sounds flashy. And again, on percentage-wise, it's true, but Josh, every company who's cut over 27%, by definition, has cut more than the financial crisis or 9-11. Every company. And we know that most small yep. businesses go out every five, year, uh, five years from startup. So to me, the, to me, you could just make this, you could write this headline every day. Every day. You could write this about some business. So... The headlines and the main thrust article seems kind of silly, but um, still is sad for people who lost their jobs. 
Yeah, you know, when I, when I was reading through it, um, you could tell just when you look at the numbers, there's a little, little graph uh, or a chart. And it has 877, then it goes to 11,000 job cuts, 12,000, 47,000, 52,000, 30,000. So we're, we're comparing a very small company relatively to right. a lot of big companies. And we're just drawing the percentages. So I, I think what, what the article was aiming to do was, a, was to say, hey, I don't know if you realized how big the Pioneer cuts were. It was actually, you know, a quarter of their workforce. But the way he went about it was, I think, as a journalist, is trying to do something flashy to get people to come in and read it. Um, I agree that there was a lot of things he could have could have looked into. Why are they cut so many people? Are they trying to trim back? Where are they trying to go? You know what? He could have went into it and made a much more helpful right. article and given us some some workable information as far as uh, what Pioneer's doing. Because there was an article that I read. Um, I don't have it. I don't have it with me. I, I don't remember where I read it, uh, but it was saying that Pioneer was actually their production right. was still doing well. Right. Yeah, and, that, and that's you, you part of the thing about. is that he he even alludes to that some in here is he he says um, that he says that they're not Pioneer earned nine hundred nine hundred seventy eight million in profit last year, its highest net income ever. Oil and gas revenue hit nearly five billion, twice the total from two years earlier. Um, and then he goes on to say. It's safe to say that Pioneer's very survival is not in question today. And, and, and so, okay, he's comparing that with um, one of the quotes from the, the airlines. And again, I thought, well, that, that's true, but there's a broader picture going on here. And the broader picture is that Wall Street, we've talked about this on this show, is that Wall Street is pressuring these oil and gas producers, give me returns, give me returns, give me returns. And so when they do that, um, if the if the producers are, are smart, they're going to listen because they want the money um, to keep going, and they don't want their their stock to be devalued. So all of this stuff is playing in here. Again, we're not saying they should let the people off. I don't know. That's Pioneer's business where they should or shouldn't. Um, but I think as you pointed out, there's there's so many things you could have pointed out. You could have just simply said Pioneer lays off almost thirty percent of its workforce, and that would have been an accurate headline. And then you could have talked about that. Well, they've yeah. cut out their assets from the Eagleford. They sold these assets, and so how much of that stems from that? And I, I don't know those numbers off the top of my head, but I'm sure that if you're selling off assets from one basin, um, then you're probably going to have layoffs because of that. It's not good. We hate it. It sucks. But I, I just think that this piece right here is a little bit misleading. Um, and, and at the end of the day, when you read it, it really doesn't help you understand anything except for by percentages, this is worse than the airlines. And as I pointed out, if you have four people and you cut two, then by percentages, those cuts are worse than any of these cuts talking about this article. And well, what's, what's that got to do with anything? Nothing. And so, um, it's a, yeah, it's, it's a great catchy headline, but yeah, per, lacks much uh, of substance in my opinion. Well, uh, there were a couple of, a couple of things that, um, that came out this week. One of them was from uh, North American Shell Magazine. They talked about uh, Texas oil and gas activity numbers reveal curious trend. Uh, it's been weird, right? The some of the news has been kind of so the oil prices have been holding steady, but there's been some some negative things going on that would make you think that oil prices would have dropped a little more than they have. So they're talking about this curious trends that they're seeing. Uh, despite a decline in the March TPI to 212 and in the first quarter of 2019, prices continue to improve and Texas crude oil production is still breaking records. So it's just a, kind of a weird thing going on um, as, from my perspective. What, what do we think 
the international stage is going to, how do we think this is going to change these prices and what we're expecting in the future? You know, I know you do some talks with Energy Week. I know uh, there's a tweet that came out from Trump about Russia and Iran and some Syria deals. Do we expect this to uh, cause an increase, whether it should or shouldn't, do we expect this to increase oil prices here in the next couple of, couple of weeks? Or do we think, because it seems to me that some of the international issues are causing the prices to hang higher when the market suggests they should be going lower. You yeah, what I'm you're saying, saying maybe, maybe the numbers are a little bit inflated. Um, you know, I don't know. This is the this is always the problem. You talk about oil and gas uh, pricing. It's that you know how much of uh, actual fear of production shortages or things like that are baked into the into the number, and of course, no one actually knows that. Uh, down to the penny or to the dollar or whatnot. We have seen spots where it'll shoot up or drop down based upon news. Um, you know, a couple of things I would think that I've, I've kind of just to look for is, you know, with Venezuela. Um, I, so with Venezuela with Iran or North Korea, obviously large-scale military conflict would, Im- would impact the price of oil and gas. I don't really think with Venezuela or North Korea you're going to see that. The rhetoric around Iran makes you wonder what's going to happen. Hopefully the Trump administration is smart enough not to go down that path. But, you know, who knows? So I'd watch for that. Um, one of the things that to keep in mind is when Trump's dealing with China is that China is tied up with Venezuela. So Venezuela and Russia are the two biggest backers of China. Now there's a report from the Wall Street Journal this morning saying that Russia is support of Venezuela is wavering. Um, so if Trump can get a deal done with China, you might see something with Venezuela happen as well because they are tied up. I'm not saying it's going to happen that way, but if I had to guess, China's probably looking at that as part of what's going on. We saw news, I think, uh, Friday, Saturday, I don't remember what it was, breaking that China is considering to come back to the table with President Trump. Um, so all of those things are potentially good things. Um, the war would obviously be you know, a, a terrible thing. But but other than that, terrible. everything seems to be potentially good. But at the same time, you have Trump threatening tariffs on Mexico. So it's always hard for me to say, hey, this is what's going to happen, and this is, isn't what's going to happen. Because, you know, on one hand, you know, this week it looks like Trump may close the deal with the Chinese and, you know, and figure out Venezuela and North Korea. And then the next week, all hell's breaking loose. So, you know, I, I right now, if I'm looking international, those are things I'm looking for is, you know, so North, so let's kind of break it down. China, which is the big deal, they're tied up with North Korea, they're tied up with Venezuela, and they get imports from Iran. Well, all those countries are deals that Trump's trying to do stuff with. So when you think about all this stuff, you just can't look at it and say, well, Trump's dealing with uh, China, and that's a one-to-one. Well, all of these other things are tied up in there. And everything that Trump, if, assuming he's as smart as everyone says he is, he's negotiating multiple deals at one time. And so once one domino falls, then theoretically the other dominoes could fall. But that also means that China is looking at these deals as well and saying, hey, you know, when if we give up here, we want you to give up there. Um, so if the Chinese are willing to deal and they are looking at the larger scope of things, which you would hope they are, um, a deal with China could send things in the right direction for U.S. Also, um, on Energy Week, you mentioned, we talked about the IMO 2020 standards, and that should increase the demand for the U.S. light sweet crew globally, according to drilling info. If that happens, then you could see prices for WTI um, potentially stay high. But 
I say all that to say we can wake up tomorrow and, and price fall down to twenty because that's just that's just the crazy the crazy world we live in. Um, not twenty, but you know what I mean. Well, uh, we have a guest coming on shortly, Ryan. So I'm gonna go ahead and hit the uh, Texas Roundup. I've been uh, searching for some some things that have been coming out this week. I've been kind of collecting some usually. Uh, one came out with Marathon. Their revenues were twenty eight point six two billion compared to eighteen point nine eight. Uh, uh, the same quarter a year ago. So net income for the first quarter was $259 million. Uh, their refining and marketing segment uh, reported an operating loss of $334 million. So they said that reflects lower crude differentials and lower gas margins. But overall, they started off the year really well, so uh, definitely a company to keep an eye on. Clear Lake Capital Back Gravity. So Gravity acquires... Uh, some disposal infrastructure from Piote Water Systems. Uh, so that is Gravity. And then Schlumberger, they uh, suffered a credit hit. Uh, this article came out Monday, May 27th. Once I read through the article, it's not a huge hit. They went from a AA- minus to an A+. Plus, so nothing too significant there, but it is something that they've hit. And they're just saying that the operating margins are not what they were back in 2014. And that's what's being reflected there. So uh, that that really covers it for the roundup. Wasn't a lot of a lot of stuff in the news this week, Ryan. No. Well, I'm sure there's a lot of stuff in the news last week, but you know we weren't here to cover it because Nate. Thanks, yep. Nate. I mean, we could have <laughs> we could have put out a show last week, Nate, but but we didn't. So um, oh, and so we we do have a guest coming on, and at the end of the show we will have a recap with. Uh, well, it's, it's a recap. It's a it's a, we sat down with. Uh, Captain Sally and Aubrey Black from Baffin Bay. So that will be coming up after our interview. It was recorded before the fishing trip. So Josh still had a, a sliver of hope. Um, and I, I got to give it to him, folks. He, he goes in there every time. He's like the little engine that could. He goes in there every time thinking that he has a shot. But it's it's been made painfully aware to him that he, he has no chance to beat me. And uh, Hey, Ryan, uh, just, just to clarify here, so... Did you win any of the trips in total? Like, so the first trip, we got we got schooled by one of the guys. Second trip, it was a four way tie. Third trip, we had a guest that came on and caught like a twenty seven inch red. So, you have beat me, but you know it's kind of like the the team that doesn't make it to the playoffs. You know, hey, I won our division. Okay, <laughs> I won our division. <laughs> I may not. I'm like the Atlanta Braves of the nineties. Okay, I'm winning the division every year. I might not have won the championship, but you know what? I'm doing what I got to do, which is to beat you. I can't help it that uh, the listeners are just laying the wood to me repeatedly. That's I didn't even <laughs> want to talk about that, to be honest with you. That's funny. Well, we have a guest coming on the show today, Mr. Joseph Tripke. He's the managing partner for Oilfield Water Connection. Joseph, great to have you on the show today, buddy. Hey, yeah, thanks. Uh, thanks for having me. Great to be here. So, real quick, you, Josh, as you brought on Oilfield Water Connection, let's just kind of set the table. Obviously, you guys are in oilfield and water, <laughs> but what exactly do you guys do before we kind of get into um, uh, some of the questions we have for you today? Yeah, sure. So, we started this company um, a couple of months ago, really, in, in reaction to a need that we saw in the industry for a dedicated forum for the business side of water. You know, I think there's a lot of great technical resources out there and oil-filled water has been a part of, of oil production since day one, you know, going back decades. But I think today's problems 
we see as increasingly economic ones, you know, problems around structure in the market, um, structure of the solutions, who will own the water, who will own the infrastructure. And those kinds of questions are being answered through a series of M&A deals and, and a lot of news flow in the space around the business side. So uh, we founded Oilfield Water Connection to deliver a, a series of conferences and, and newsletters and, and information to the uh, and networking opportunities to the oil-filled water community that are focused on the business side of things. Yeah, and as you mentioned, there's a there's a lot going on with water. Um, you know, it's funny because this time last year, sand was kind of the big thing. Water was was there, but sand was a big thing. Water then all the I mean, sand then uh, market kind of just died basically overnight. It seems like um, Josh and I obviously have had a lot of folks on who say that they're really bullish long term on the water, but there is some guess, and I don't know. Uh, I don't know. He hasn't been able to come on yet. Who's, who said? You know what? The water thing's overhyped. Where do you kind of stand on where we're at in the water market out in the Permian Basin? So I, I would say that uh, you know I would take the view that it's it's actually underhyped. Um, I think there is a lot of news flow, but that's very recent, and I think there is some attention being paid, but probably not enough. Um, we think that water is actually potentially the number one potential choke point. Um, and I know the industry kind of has a, a potentially a bit of alarm fatigue, right? We hear about choke points and 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 potential bottlenecks quite a bit. Um, at my other company, InfillThinking.com, we've covered sand, uh, you know, at length, and we continue to cover it. But sand is really kind of my day job, actually. <laughs> and oilfield water is is something that I've gotten into fairly recently in, in my research. But um, but certainly we do see water now as being potentially, you know, the, the factor that I think is, is sort of the black swan event that could that could really impact oil production, our ability to produce oil if we don't do something about it and address it. And I think steps are being taken, but I do think the, the threat is real and it's urgent. Um, and so that's why I think you're seeing more attention being paid. You're seeing a lot of capital come into the market. Private equity is very focused on, on this space right now. And, um, you know, real capital is deploying to solve the problem. Yeah, when we talk about water, one of the things I was talking about uh, with someone the other day is, you know, there was kind of this this point in time where, you know, and uh, you know, water, you know, fresh, clear, clean, fresh water. Um, we've seen some talk about brackish water. Obviously, you know, we've got an abundance of salt water just south of us here in Texas. Um, where is the water going as far as trend? Are we going to see more brackish water because we have with the Santa Maria out there? Um, I think it's Emory. Anyways, um, big brackish water play. It, it, do, will we see more brackish water and ultimately move towards more salt water, or is it just never not even on the horizon? There's so much fresh water that um, while it is a choke point, um, producers are still going to try to push that direction. No, that's a that's a great question, and the way that we see that is is really you know operators have an aversion to using fresh water particularly in the Permian, which is a drought-stricken area that water resources are very limited. Um, there are certain thresholds of, of water that operators simply will not take. Uh, and, and by that, I mean high-quality, potable you know, water they will not use in their fracks. So there is a, a real demand and a, and a desire from the industry to use increasingly lower quality, if you will, or you know, water with higher salt content, higher TDS, total dissolved solid content, in their fracking and a lot of that need the incremental need is being solved by recycling produced water and so if you listen to the public EMPs, you know simrex is a good example um 
as a company, they're they're using about 50, 53% of recycled water in their fracks, and that's even higher in their Culberson County assets where they're actually fracking with 97% recycled water. And what that means is, you know, their wells that produce oil are producing water as well. You know, those cuts can be, you know, three, four, five to one. Um, you know, I think it's it's often kind of overlooked that the the oil industry, 75% of, of what we produce in the Permian is actually water, not oil. And so there's plentiful produced water coming out of oil wells and companies like Simrex are increasingly using and relying on that water for their frack needs. So we do see, you know, recycling being a, a critical um, way to, to source water for frack. You know, I think whenever I talk about the bottleneck and the potential to drown out the boom, you know, we really see that risk being more on the produced water side. So how do we dispose of the water that we're producing? It's not necessarily about procuring fresh water or brackish water for fracks, although that, that certainly is a factor, but it's more of what do we do with the millions of barrels a day of water that are coming out of the ground and where do we put it and how do we dispose of it and transport that? And on that line of thinking, what would you? What are you guys proposing? I know you guys have a conference we're going to talk about here in a minute on um, June twenty first in Houston. But what, what are some of your ideas to handle those issues? Yeah, so I guess the you know we we would say the status quo um, method, you know, which a lot of that has been truck trucking that water, uh, you know, one hundred and twenty barrels at a time to disposal assets. Um, you know, that that in-place infrastructure is either going to have to be beefed up materially or we're going to have to come up with some new solutions. Um, there's simply not enough capacity in the market to, to handle this. So to kind of give you an example and put it into context in terms of the size, you know, a typical day this summer, the Permian Basin is going to produce 13 to 14 million barrels of water. That's enough to fill, you know, call it 900 Olympic-sized swimming pools. Massive quantity of water that has to be dealt with. If we look and play forward crude oil production forecasts into play, and we see activity moving into the Delaware where water cuts are even higher, you know, by the early 2020s, that figure could double. So we could be looking at 1,800 Olympic-sized swimming pools of water a day that has to go somewhere. Meanwhile, on the disposal side, you have challenges in terms of, you know, the, the sort of rush on porosity or, or pore space. Our, our friends at Source Water, I think, have put it very well, talking about the, the rush on pore space in the Permian. You know, there just isn't as much land available to build disposal capacity. Furthermore, we're seeing seismicity increase, and some of that may or may not be due to injection, but it seems correlated. And we know the Texas Railroad Commission is looking at that closer. And in, in cases where folks are trying to permit saltwater disposal wells in high seismicity areas, you know, we're seeing that increasingly be a challenge, and we think that the regulator could begin to, to crack down on that. So, you know, the, the long answer to your question, I say, or the short answer, I guess, summing up that long answer to your question, is that we're going to need to spend billions of dollars on new infrastructure, whether that's pipe, you know, to an, an area where we can safely and responsibly and sustainably dispose of water, um, you know, to, to billions of dollars on new SWD infrastructure. Um, and so we really see, again, you know, that starting off the conversation talking about the need for capital and new business and market solutions, you know, that's really going to be the focus of the industry for the next couple of years. So you, you mentioned, you know, piping this and 900 uh, Olympic size swimming pools and, and storage. What, what, what is the storage length? What, what kind of time frame are we looking? Is um, So if, if you did, you know, transport this huge amount of water via pipeline, 
somewhere safe because uh, we do have listeners on, on the podcast who uh, are getting SWDs. What what is the the long term environmental impact of uh, storing this water, and what efforts are being made to um, you know to remedy some of those those concerns? Sure, that's that's a great question, and I think there's a lot of a lot of folks looking at that. Um, there's a lot of science being done on that. I, you know, I think it's probably too early to say what exactly the, the right answer is. You know, I know the industry is practicing, um, you know, safely under under current standards, and, and it's worked so far. Um, because remember, you know, the Permian tidal oil story is only, you know, about seven, eight, ten years old, right? It's it's not a very old story, and so, uh, and and really, the last couple of years have been the explosive growth, really, since the downturn in 2014. So, I think the the practices that we've had in place and the, the infrastructure and assets have worked up to this point. But I think the question really going forward is what to do with, you know, that 900 Olympic size swimming pool figure doubling to to 1800. How do we handle that, and how do we do that sustainably? I, I think the short answer is no one really knows, uh, but I do know that the industry is very focused on sustainability. On the science side, I think the, the Texas uh, Railroad Commission does a fantastic job of looking at this and, and developing a body of knowledge. Some of the brightest minds in the industry now are, are working on these problems. And I do think, you know, as we look at the, the industry's business model evolution, when you see these third-party midstream companies coming into the water space that are developing shared infrastructure um, and taking this over from E&P companies, I think those companies will be focused on the, the reservoir impact, you know, the water table impact, um, how do we not water out the reservoirs. You know, all these are things that are, are sort of at the cutting edge of, of oil field science today. Okay, we mentioned you guys have an event coming up here in Houston at the Petroleum Club of Houston on June 21st. It is, it looks like an all-day event, and we also have on, um, so you'll be speaking, and then um, Kelly Bennett from B3 Insight, who I believe we had on the podcast here just a few weeks ago, will be speaking as well. Uh, so if the listeners are curious a little bit about those guys, you can go back and check that out. Um, and a host of other folks who are probably just as qualified, if not more, on all of these water topics. A lot to get to. Um, it looks like you guys have a lot of panel discussions, some breakout sessions. Um, what can folks expect if they're in the Houston area on June 21st and they want to attend this event? Yeah, so uh, thank you for asking. So, it's yeah, we're very excited um, about the, the speaker list. Kelly, uh, as you mentioned, Kelly Bennett from B3 will be addressing uh, the economic outlook for Permian Water. We have a a lot of really bright stars on the, the speaker lineup, starting with Peter Bowden, the global head of energy banking at Jefferies, who has, you know, he's one of the dominant midstream bankers and has uh, been instrumental in, in some of the recent water deals. He'll be taking things off with the keynote. And then we have a whole um, whole slew of, of C-suite level executives from both the E&P side, the water midstream side, the water services side, who are all going to be focused on topics related to M&A and finance, business model, and market structure. So it's a very unique lineup. We think it's the first ever conference that really focuses entirely on the water business. And if folks want to learn more, they can check out oilfieldwater.com. I would say, you know, this event being June 21st, uh, downtown Houston, we've already sold out sponsorships last week, and we do expect this will be a full house. We have uh, have only a, a couple dozen seats remaining. So if folks are interested, we'd encourage them to get on it. Okay. Um... And the, and the website for Oilfield Water is oilfieldwater.com. Be sure to check them out. Um, Joseph, it was great to have you on today. We'll link to all this stuff in the show notes. Uh, anything else before we get you out of here today? 
No, thanks for having me. Yeah, just uh, encourage folks to, to head over to wellfilledwater.com and, and check out the lineup. We think we've got a great day planned. Well, it was great having uh, Mr. Joseph Tripke, uh, managing partner for Oilfield Water Connection, on the show today. Uh, really good, really good insights. I think uh, this you know, into the water issues. We've been talking about that for a lot, a uh, long time, run. So it was great having him on. Uh, if any of the listeners, you make it down to the conference, I'm sure it'd be a great thing to attend. With that, Ryan, I think that uh, wraps us up, man. Uh, looking forward to the Shrimp Bowl. Hopefully, we'll get to meet uh, some more of our listeners. And, uh, yeah, I think that's it. Yeah, that is it. And uh, 900, swim, 900 Olympic-sized swimming pools. That's that's a lot of that's a lot of water you got to do something with. So That's uh, a lot of water right there. That is a lot of water. So Millions of gallons. <laughs> yeah. I mean... I don't know how big a, uh, I don't know what the exact measurements are, but you just stop and think about like a, like a lot in like a, um, you know, just a normal community. I would imagine it's going to be, would take up most, if not all of that. I think that to do the actual math on how big it is. But you start thinking about that, you know, just how, how much actual space it would take to, to retain all that water. So. And we're back with the Texas Oil and Gas Podcast. Ryan and I are at Baffin Bay. This is our third trip. I'm your host, Josh Shelton, my friend and co-host, Ryan Ray. Ryan, we've been looking forward to this trip for a while, man. We've been uh, gearing up, planning for the rules, and uh, planning for my victory. So, uh... <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's funny. It's we got four scheduled trips. This is your third and last. So, um, just by number of trips and fish and weight alone i will win because i'll be the fourth time but last time you came down here josh you did catch a fish or two so good for you but you didn't win so this is your last chance to win and we sat down had a serious rules committee meeting um with the the generous owners of baffin bay ron gunn and we came to the conclusion that what should win it tomorrow what what, what is the determining factor we said well if you want to see who's really gonna you know who really is top fisherman and everything you just need to have one category that's the biggest fish Biggest so, fish. By weight. By weight. Yeah. Big, Not going to go by length. It'll be by weight. So, Biggest fish by weight. And so for people who haven't been down here, if you're going biggest fish by weight, uh, would you say there's three main fish really you can catch, flounder, redfish, trout. Which of those three has the potential or most likely to be the biggest by weight? Probably the redfish. But uh, our redfish bite has been on the slow side lately. But we've been catching a lot of trout. So I, I actually think, uh, you know, we've caught some pretty big trout lately, too. So I actually think that uh, a, a pretty decent trout's got a good chance of winning tomorrow. And uh, so last time I think I caught a 19-inch trout. What's a 24, 25? That's, pretty, that's what you consider pretty decent down here? Yeah. I mean, we've, uh, we've been catching some here in the last couple of weeks up to about 30 inches. So, uh, and I think there was one yesterday that was about 27, and there's several – Several in the 24 to 25 inch category. So we're on some pretty decent fish right now. We got the fish are in full blown spawn mode. Um, probably, I'd say probably most of them have spawned, but there's still a bunch of them that are in the process right now. So they're up shallow where they're supposed to be. And uh, you'll catch some of the smaller males that uh, look like they've been run through a meat grinder. I mean, they're, <laughs> they're, they're all beat up. You know, I guess. Uh, I guess trout sex must be rough. I'm, I'm guessing just by looking at those poor things. <laughs> well, Ryan, just to clarify on something we mentioned, 
you won the first trip. It was a tie last time. You haven't won anything. That's what you're saying. That's right. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So we're clear. Uh, you haven't anything won anything over 25 inches. If I catch it, it counts as two wins, right? That's that. No, it's not double or nothing. It is not double or nothing. We've been you, saying that you, for no. We said weeks. We, we said if you catch a 30 incher. Oh, instead of 25 inch. What what what's considered? Monster is 30 inches, correct? Oh yeah. If you catch 30 inch, you catch 30 inch trout. I'll I'll, I'll find something to give you. <laughs> <laughs> a 30 inch trout makes you the undefeated, undisputed champ. I'll give you a 30 inch trout. You you take all the fish you've caught, divide them by 10, you might have 30 inches of trout. <laughs> Sadly, you know, we were sitting here earlier talking and having a good time, and one of the things you guys point out is fishing. One thing about fishing is is you get to tell stories and you get to have fun and. What's it like just to get to have a place where every day you come and you sit and you get to hear various fishing stories? And I'm sure you've got a thousand times more than we do. It's a, a lot of fun. And the thing about most of that is half of it isn't even true. <laughs> but whoever tells the best fishing story is uh, a fishing god, you know, mm-hmm. lower, lowercase g. But uh, we are really, really lucky to have a lot of great guides here with super funny personalities and then of course our clients all kind of fall into place because it's we we try to keep it kind of low-keyed and fun Mm -hmm. and try not to put pressure on anybody and so it's really a great time and the more mishaps you have the more fishing stories you have and as long as they're not uh, too serious your your buddy that you brought along for this trip that that story he told a while ago, that, that, that that's, was, on, that's right on up there yeah. with some of the funniest ones I've that's heard. That's a good one. That was a good one. Well, as you mentioned, most store fishing stories aren't true. and I, I'm guessing that one might fall into that category, <laughs> knowing the person who told it. So. Or an embellishment of, of some <laughs> sort of truth. Well, every fishing guy I know is a liar, except for me and, and Sally. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes I wonder about her. <laughs> Sometimes I know about you. <laughs> <laughs> but it is, you know, that's one of the things, Josh, you come down here and it's, we talked a lot about the amenities and all the stuff, but the, the host and just getting to sit and tell the stories is the listeners. Uh, we love to kind of go back and forth and, and have a blast, but that, that really makes it a, a fun and, and, and special event that we get to do. Unfortunately, you don't have any fishing stories to tell because you have plenty <laughs> fish, but, but for me, I get to tell my fair share and that makes it worth it. Um, so you mentioned last time the spawn was getting ready to happen. You said now it's here. Um, obviously, we won't be back until late June. So listeners are listening, thinking about booking trips. They're looking ahead. Um, what, what, what are we looking at? What, what advice? I know the wind's been here a little bit. So what's going on the next 30 days, let's say? Well, it's, quanti- it's going to be called quantity fishing. So you're still going to be able to catch big fish. They might not be as heavy as they are pre-spawn or during the spawn while they're feeding and working very hard um, to get all their eggs out and blah, blah, blah. But um, as we go on from here, it's just unbelievable the quantity of trout that are in Baffin Bay. The water quality is beautiful. The unbelievable amount of bait here. And you'll see tomorrow rivers and rivers of mullet. And, um, and then there'll be some shrimp coming in the bay. And then the water level right now is kind of high and it will drop out. So that will make uh, sight casting in the shallow water fantastic. So what we do generally in mid-June, late June, July, August. So we will get up early and trout fish, wade fish for trout early, throw in topwaters, throw in plastics, get our limits 
About 10 o'clock when the sun gets up at the right level, we'll go out and do some sight casting for redfish and black drum. So it's a full day of the whole nine yards. Right. Now, we haven't seen black drum yet. Will we, will we might see some of those tomorrow, or are they still a little early for those? We saw, we saw some recently, but uh, uh, we weren't really targeting black drum, but we did see quite a few. So, yeah, they're, they're there right now. Like I said, the water, the water level is pretty high in Baffin, and uh, for whatever reason, you would think that we would be able to find redfish and drum a little easier, but uh, it tends to make them a little more, or it is for me. Now, I can't speak for everything, and I like to preface everything I say with this is what I see, and I've just, when, when the water level gets high, I have more trouble catching redfish. We'll catch some, but it's not, it, it's a little harder to target them and get them to bite. You know, we were out there last time, Josh, and uh, one of the things we noticed was uh, the skip was out there and he was catching them. I was joking earlier, I was watching your rod tip and your reel speed, and that, that, that does play, you know, it's not obviously for the more advanced fishermen that listen to the show, they would know that, but let's talk a little bit about positioning of the rod tip, reel speed. Obviously, you can't give a, um, a lesson for every scenario, but just kind of walk us through quickly just um, rod positioning, reel speed. How much does that actually play into what you're doing out there um, on a day-to-day -day basis? It probably, it's, it's probably means a lot. It's funny, um, you know, I've, I've been out there, I've been fishing on this bay for 16 years now, and it seems like you just kind of get in tune with the fish and what they like, or, or you just, you know, I, I think, I, for me, I thought, it, I think it's just by accident, but, um, but my real speed, my real retrieve, um, pretty much developed while I was bass fishing. I was always a finesse bass fisherman. So um, most of the fishing that I do now is the same way. I've fished right next to Jay Watkins, and if you've ever fished with Jay, he's, I wouldn't call him a finesse fisherman, but he'll throw the same things that I'm throwing. And, but he's working them fast and hard, and, uh, and he's having great success. I've, I'm always a low and slow guy, and uh, and I've, I've had yeah. great success with that. So, <laughs> yes, you have. So it's, you know, I, I can give you, a, I can tell you a hundred different ways, and I can kind of show you how I do it. And and we've we've had demonstrations out in our swimming pool before for clients, and I can show you the things that I do. But it it seems like every once in a while it'll just be some little something that uh, that that somebody in the group will do that just seems to trigger more strikes. Mm -hmm. And like I said, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a finesse fisherman, so I fish slow. And, you know, I like, I like fishing with the little paddle tails most of the time. But uh, right, right now, that seems to be the, the best way to catch them because uh, everybody, every, all, all of our guys are using that technique right now. So it's... Uh, Although, like we talked about, the three-day cycle and the five-day cycle of feeding for big fish on Baffin. Baffin's a little different than every other bay on the Texas coast. There's just no uh, water influx here. Everything's pretty much the same, especially now we've been in a wind cycle for quite some time, and uh, there's one stretch of the shoreline that's just producing, like, it seems like the gift that keeps on giving. And one day it'll end and it'll be sad. But we've fish, been fishing there every day for quite some time, and it's just production city, and fish to 10, 11 pounds. 
And yet some days you'll go there and it'll be all fish that are 16 inches or 15 and a half up to 18. And then some days you'll go there the next day, you'll be catching fish in the mid twenties and up. So something about that, the way they travel through there is kind of interesting. And the presentation can be so varied to catch fish on any given day. So we, I always try two or three different presentations and find that right one and kind of impart all of that to my clients and, and then off we go. So Josh, at your last trip here, um, what's been your favorite thing? I'm curious, we didn't talk about this much, but what's been your favorite thing about these, about these trips? And obviously you eat like a, like a pig who hasn't been fed in three days when you come down here, it's ridiculous. Well, but uh, <laughs> I love the food, I love the food. We had uh, great Mediterranean shrimp this time, which was just fantastic. Um, so I, I love the atmosphere and the evenings we get to meet with clients, listeners, people who've signed up for the trip. So we've had a great time the evening before fishing. And then when we get on the water, um, this is the first time I've ever wade fished. So getting out in the water, wading, talking, and, and fishing, that's been very enjoyable. Uh, it's been very nice. The first time we went out, it was pretty cold. Uh, so the last trip we went out, I, I did get sunburned, but I caught a lot of fish and I had a great time. Uh, had a great time last time. Um, the overall, the overall bay uh, is beautiful out there when you're riding around shallow water, uh, especially when we were uh, casting from the boat. That was that was a lot of fun. We saw just fish all around us. You could see through the water, beautiful water. Um, so that's been some of my things that have really been enjoyable. Yeah, no, that's that's a uh, couldn't have disagree with any of that. Um, okay, so let's see here. We need to hit your sponsors. I think I had. I thought I had one more question, but... Well, another cool thing about y'all being here throughout this entire cycle is that you've got, you've had an opportunity to experience the cold, mm-hmm. the, you know, mid stuff, the windy right. stuff, right. the now right. the spawn. I right. mean, so you're, you've done it right by coming every month. We have lots of clients that do that all through the trophy trout season. They, right. they come every month. Yeah, no, I know what I was going to say is that, you know, one thing Josh touched on a minute ago, and I'm sure you guys probably get this with people bringing down clients or families, is we have just as much fun tonight as we will tomorrow. And that's not, I love to fish, I'm not diminishing the fishing, but you, you, you think about the fishing trip and sometimes you think, well, we're going to fish and fish and fish, but for our listeners who might want to bring a client or, you know, get away with some family and friends, the night before, if you get down here, dinner's usually at 6.30, it's a little later at night, but dinner's usually at 6.30, you get down here in time for dinner and you get checked in and you kick your feet back up the night before can be just as much fun it's hard to beat beating josh and fishing but it can almost match that <laughs> it can almost match that um and so i'm sure you guys hear that a lot from your clients as well is yeah. that it's a good environment well, we've, for that we've uh, our our whole goal when we started this was to have a place where people like i said once they once they walk through the gate into our place can kind of pretty much drop their cares or their worries right there uh, come on in and have a have a cold adult beverage, or or just sit around and listen. Because like, and having our guides here uh, for dinner, I think was a big plus. Because you know, there's a lot of people that just they they they'll meet their guides in the morning and they'll spend the day with them on the boat, and you get to learn a lot about them like that. But having them here the night before, you can discuss tactics or or they can get the right gear set up or right. that you know if they've got any questions they can get them all answered then and plus get to know each other a little bit 
on a more personal level mm-hmm. than uh, just out once you get on the boat. Because a lot of a lot of captains, once they get out of the boat, well, they turn into Captain Bly, and uh, <laughs> you know, it's, you know, they they're sh- shooting directions and orders and mm-hmm. stuff like that. So. Not, not me, of course. <laughs> I don't do that. Well, hey, you know, the one thing I will say is that every time we've came, you've, you've, you've told us what you thought the fishing was going to be. And the first time we came, you said, hey, guys, I'm not going to lie to you. It might not be great today. Now, we ended up catching a decent amount of fish, but you did preface it right off the bat by saying, hey, the wind's here out of the north. We're going to this different bay. I'm not sure. And so we, I really thought that was admirable just to set expectations to say, hey, you know, if we were on a client trip out with clients, the clients aren't getting their hopes and their – their, their hopes and dreams up and say, okay, you know what? You know, you've been out here fishing for years and years and years, and this is what you should expect. And that's, that's good to hear that it's not just, uh, you know, puff pieces and you get out there and then everyone leaves disappointed. You guys can't control the fish you're biting or not, but you do have a sense of it, and relaying that to the, mm-hmm. to the, to the customers is important. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm going to step out on a limb and, and say that uh, this will be y'all's best of the three trips. This is going to be your best production-wise. I, I, I wish you would have said that would have been next month when Josh wasn't here. But. <laughs> it probably will be next year. And, you know, another little piece of advice, if, if anybody can and they want to come down and, and do some serious fishing here, always spend two days fishing mm-hmm. because this is more of a destination. Mm-hmm. So it kind of takes a day to kind of get uh, acclimated, um, you know, feel the love and uh, understand the presentations and such. And then the next day you go out and you're on the game. Right. So fishing two days is always more productive. And BaffinBayRodandGun.com is, of course, the website. You're very active on LinkedIn, Captain Sally Black. They have a Baffin Bay Rod and Gun Facebook page you're on. If you follow Texas Gas Podcast, um, Instagram. We've tagged with them and stuff on Instagram, so they're on Instagram. We are omnipresent. You are everywhere. Yes. That is right. You are everywhere. Now you're on Rig Links. We've had on yes, Greg Williams multiple times. You're on Rig Links, so you can check with the listeners on Rig Links. You can connect with them there. Um, anything else before we get you guys out here today? I know y'all are ready to go and call today and get ready for a big day of fishing tomorrow. Anything else before we get you out of here? Uh, we're, like I said, being omnipresent. We're, uh, if you pick up the June issue of Texas Highways Magazine, there's a really nice article in there about us. Uh, if you're subscribed to the King Ranch Saddle Shop, they've got a nice little blog piece in there about us. Uh, Great video. Yeah, and a good a good video. It's got me in it, so. <laughs> well, he's being real um, calm about this, but he is the uh, unpaid new male model for the King Ranch Saddle Shop's new line of, uh, they call it Coastal Classic Outdoor Clothing. That's me. I'm a coastal classic. <laughs> <laughs> well, we have many unpaid opportunities in the Texas Long Guys podcast. So if you're looking for more of those, call us up. Oh, and we, we're, we're covered up with unpaid opportunity. <laughs> but, yeah. you know, you have to do that, too, sometimes. And, That's right. And because the King Ranch people are friends of ours, and they asked us to participate. And we were really happy to do so, and um, it turned out fantastic. And So, yes, if you get a chance to look at that, I did put that out on Rig, rig Links today. And um, I'm, I'll definitely share that link with you, and maybe yep. you could put it on your your. Um, we'll be, yeah, we'll link to that in the show notes. We'll get it to Nate, and Great. we'll put it in the show notes so everybody can check that out. That's fun. Well, baffinbaitrodandgun.com, again, is the website. That's the, probably the quickest and easiest way to get it with them. And, uh, guys, look forward to seeing you again in June. Anyways, yeah, and be sure to thank our sponsor, Baffin Bay Rod and Gun. By going to baffinbaitrodandgun.com, booking your trip today if you have clients, family, friends, just want to get away by yourself. They are the people to get you hooked up with a great fishing trip. You can go catch big fish like me or 
little fish like Josh, depending on <laughs> <laughs> depending on your skill level. Again, baffinbaitrodandgun.com. Thanks for tuning in. Hope to see you Wednesday. And until next time. Oh, hey, Josh, real quick, before we get off here, we had some listeners that we had uh, lunch with a few weeks ago, so I just wanted to give them a shout-out. We would have shouted them out last week, but but Nate, so, uh, you know, we would have thanked all those folks for taking us out to lunch and um, stuff like that, but Nate messed it up, so. Um, yeah, that was, uh, yeah, that was the first time a listener has actually bought my lunch. So, yeah, uh, so it was great to go and meet up with those guys, and uh, blame Nate that we didn't give you a shout-out last week. Anyways, until next time, keep fun. Yeah.